This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. I am not Deborah Levy. Unfortunately, I would love to be Deborah Levy because all these books would be inside me. My name is John Freeman. It's my enormous pleasure to be introducing her tonight, and I'll be talking to her after she reads. For the past five years at dinner parties and with friends, there's been a moment when the conversation turns back to books at last. (laughs) And within that instant, an almost unbearably delicious opportunity has often emerged for me to ask whether my companions have ever read anything by Deborah Levy. When the answer has been no, I have briefly understood what it must be like to be God, or a very good doctor. Because in that exchange, if I make my case, here's essentially what I have the opportunity to do, to offer the listener more life. You have all already chosen more life, and you're in your seats, so you're going to get more life now, whether you want it or not. But let me explain what I mean, should you decide you want even more life after we're done with you tonight. Opening a Deborah Levy book, one does not find our days and hours defined and ordered, lifted up and examined with tongs the way it so often is in a book, or especially in fiction. Now, now here is the full Monty of it, charged to the maximum voltage, violent, beautiful, strange, holy even. Levy's books are full of lovers with hateful longings. One rubs pepper all over the body of another. Lovers with desperate pleas for attention. One rides a pony into a dining room and feeds it cubes. Lovers with rivers of pasts inside them. Quote, as much as I try to make the past keep still and mind its manners, says one to another in Levy's gorgeous novel, Swimming Home, the first of three of her books to be nominated for the Booker Prize. Quote, it moves and murmurs with me through every day. What would happen if that past surfaced? That's the question so many of her books asks. And this is in part what makes Levy's work so brilliant, so reassuring, and so comforting. Because time and again, in her seven novels, three story collections, and two glorious memoirs, the past comes surging forth, like water gushing through the most elegantly designed sandbags, our consciousnesses. Reading a book by Levy, one feels an enormous, genial, intelligent forgiveness bearing down upon you as a reader. She allows that we all live on the knife edge of such pressure. Sometimes it's indeed our fault, or maybe it's just the culture's too. We can see us pushing back on this with the hesitation to say what it is we want sometimes. We can also see this pressure bearing down on us in our desperate attempts to get away from it all. It's not something Levy's characters can escape, though. This disquiet, this dis-ease, though they may try. Hey, Levy's novels are judging from her memoirs. Her life, too, are often set abroad, elsewhere, on brief getaways, or sometimes, in the case of Hot Milk, a kind of institution. Levy's gift as a writer has been essentially an extension of the theatrical to put a group of people into a room and to create a whole new way of turning their ear to their pastnesses perhaps because that she, she has many inside of her. She was born in Johannesburg, moved to Wembley Park in 1968. 
She trained at Darlington College of Arts and began writing plays in 1981, ultimately acting as a writer and director of a theater in Cardiff. In the 1980s, she traded the play for the short story and began writing them. Her collections include Black Vodka. By the way, she has a genius for titles. Others include Amorous Discourse in the Suburbs of Hell. (laughs) Or Pillow Talk in Europe and Other Stories. Anyway, Black Vodka was up for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Prize. And she's also won fellowships with the Lannan Foundation. And now she lives in London. She was a a 2018 fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination based in Paris. Her latest books are the two autobiographies, Things I Didn't Want to Know and The Cost of Living, these two swerving, warm, and achingly alive memoirs about growing up in South Africa, coming to England, writing on building a family, and to a large degree, unbuilding the illusions and delusions attached to her as a woman and as a woman in a household. Imagine if Elena Ferranti wrote a memoir, and you'll get a whiff of how these books leap you out of your seat. And she's about to read from them, as well as her new novel, The Man Who Saw Everything. And you'll see, you'll find yourself standing. Ladies and gentlemen, Deborah Levy. Good evening, and thank you very much, John. Um, The experience of listening to his introduction, Jet Lagged, in the dark, (laughs) with the ground sort of moving here in Santa Fe is something I'll never forget. (laughs) Thank you for coming out tonight, and my big gratitude to the Lannan family and the foundation for bringing me out here. it's odd what you collect in, uh, on a book tour. Uh, what I mean is, someone said to me, that's an apricot tree, and in summer, all the apricots fall on the curb. And I thought, that's what I'll think about, the apricot tree here in Santa Fe. So I'm going to start uh, by reading three poems from a poetry collection I wrote 20 years ago called An Amorous Discourse in the Suburbs of Hell. I cut my writerly teeth on poetry, and in those days I wrote on a typewriter, and we used to take our pages of A4 with our poems on it to pubs in London. Our hands shook, people drank beer, and trembling, we, uh, you know, age 18, 19, we read our work. And um, the idea for an amorous discourse really came from the poet William Blake, who, age nine, was walking um, across a stretch of green in London called Peckham Rye, and he saw eight angels. Uh, sitting in a tree. And he came home and he said to his dad, I saw, uh, I saw angels sitting, sitting in the boughs of a tree today. And his father said, don't tell lies, William. So I thought, what would happen if a female angel 
washed up on the shores of Britain, and she met an accountant in the suburbs. And they kind of had an argument. Um, I'm I'm into arguments. In in, in, uh, The Man Who Saw Everything, my latest book, my leading man, Saul Adler, and Jennifer Moreau argue for 30 years. Why argue for three minutes when you could argue for 30 years? And some of... um, some of the tone for the man who saw everything is really laid down in, in this collection. So I'm just going to read a few. He, there you are, all wonderful and winged and leaking that smile. Come in. I want to walk through snowstorms burning for you, peeling oranges for you, shimmering and shivering, my assured modern woman. Who are you, anyway? She, I have come to save you from the suburbs of hell, to rub my skin against the, regula- against the regularity of your habits, to bend your thoughts like a spoon, to find your memories lost in software, dived like a thought out of paradise, into your acrylic arms. He, uninvited, you flew into my house and ate all my plums. (laughs) I woke up to your starry tattoos, fingers tangled in your hair. I asked you to stay. Now you make incense from my heart and liver, spit mean small feathers at my good intentions. No wonder you fell from grace into my poor lap. Fearful pigeons scurry about the roof ever since you arrived. She. Ever since I arrived on your blue planet, most of it ocean, I hear the breath of an octopus bigger than a car, eggs in her arms calling for you. Ever since I arrived, I hear the historic echo of yesterday's lambs under the tarmac of the ring road, barring and frolicking for you. Ever since I arrived, you walk from the table to the window ledge, cursing the pigeons on your roof, their ragged wings, and my ragged wings opening for you. And so it goes on. So I'm going to read just a a short extract from my two memoirs. Um, In Britain, these are called living autobiographies. And the reason I called them that is that my understanding of autobiography is that they're written at the end of a life uh, with hindsight, uh, with, with some wisdom. And I thought, well... How about writing in the storm of life, when you're not really wise, stuff's happening? Um, And I'm going to call it a living autobiography. Uh, In America, I think it's called a working, uh, a working autobiography. 
Um, and I wanted to document uh, my 40s and then my 50s because they seem to be pretty, um, not really recorded, uh, female experience at that age. So things I don't want to know is number one. And no one can say the title. Um, and the things we don't want to know are the things we know anyway, but kind of push down and repress. You know, so if we say, um, think, uh, you know what, that, that person, I always feel a bit frightened when uh, he speaks to me. Um, so there's something we know about that person, but we, we kind of push it down, right? So the things we don't want to know are the things we know anyway. Um, and I start with the narrator, who is quite a lot like myself. Um, in spring, and I, I'll, I'll just, I won't say too much, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it. That spring, when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to, I seemed to cry most on escalators at train stations. Going down them was fine, but there was something about standing still and being carried upwards that did it. From apparently nowhere, tears poured out of me and by the time I got to the top and felt the wind rushing in, it took all my effort to stop myself from sobbing. It was as if the momentum of the escalator carrying me forwards and upwards was a physical expression of a conversation I was having with myself. Escalators, which in the early days of their invention were known as traveling staircases or magic stairways, had mysteriously become danger zones. I knew things had to change when one week I found myself staring intently at a poster in my bathroom titled The Skeletal System. This featured a human skeleton with its inner organs and bones labelled in Latin and which I constantly misread as the societal system. <laughs> I made a decision. If escalators had become machines with torrid emotionality, a system that transported me to places I did not want to go, why not book a flight to somewhere I did want to go. Three days later, I zipped up my brand new laptop and found myself sitting in aisle seat 22C, heading for Palma, Mallorca. As the plane took off, I realized that being stranded between the earth and the sky was a bit like being on an escalator. <laughs> the man unlucky enough to be sitting next to a weeping woman, <laughs> looked like he'd once been in the army and now spent his days lying on a beach. I was so pleased my cheap airline buddy was a tough guy with hard square shoulders and jagged welts of sunburn striping his thick neck because I did not want anyone to attempt to comfort me. <laughs> if anything, my tears seemed to send him 
into a tantric shopping coma. (laughs) He called for the air hostess and ordered two cans of beer, a vodka and coke, an extra coke, a tube of Pringles, a scratch card, a teddy bear stuffed with mini chocolate bars, a Swiss watch on special offer, and asked the crew if the airline had one of those questionnaires to fill in where you get a free holiday if it's drawn out of the hat. The tanned military man pushed the teddy bear into my face and said, that'll cheer you up if nothing will. As if the bear was a handkerchief with glass eyes sewn on it. (laughs) So, uh, I'm skipping now to uh, about 33 pages, and uh, I am in a a small hotel in, in Mallorca, run by this incredible woman called Maria, who irrigates her orchard. She's built an irrigation system herself, and this waters the oranges and lemons. And, um, and uh, the narrator, who is a, quite a lot like myself, I, I say this because when you write um, something memoirish, or even have the cheek to call it a living autobiography, you have to kind of find out who this I is. You have to find this first-person voice is. And, um, and that's, what, uh, that's, what, that's what this book's about, really. So, the narrator goes to a little shop in the village, and she wants to buy a bar of very high-cocoa-content chocolate for Maria, the landlady of the pensione. The owner of the grocery stall was a distinguished Chinese man originally from Shanghai. For as long as I'd known him, he was always reading books behind the counter, tortoise-shell spectacles perched halfway down his nose. His black hair was now streaked with silver as we exchanged superficial greetings. How are you? Yes, not many tourists at this time of year. Yes, it is cold. The forecast said it might even snow. How was I going to spend my day? I told him I was about to walk to the next village to see the monastery where Georges Saint and Frédéric Chopin stayed during the winter of 1838. He smiled, but it was more of a grimace. Oh, yes, Georges Saint. The Mallorcans didn't like her. She dressed in men's clothing, and she said Mallorcans preferred their pigs to their people. No, Georges Saint was not a woman he would like to share a bottle of wine with. When I laughed, I was not really sure what I was laughing about or whom I was laughing at. (laughs) Georges Saint smoked large cigars to get through her day. She would have needed them living in the gloomy monastery of Jesus the Nazare, with its withered flowers and suffering wooden saints lurking in the alcoves. It seemed a sinister place to live with children and to have a love affair. 
the guidebook told me that she had no choice but to rent rooms here because no one dared offer accommodation to Chopin, who'd been uh, diagnosed with tuberculosis. I admired her for trying to keep cheerful for her children and writing at her desk wearing Chopin's trousers instead of wasting her life weeping about her circumstances. With this in mind, I briskly walked out of the monastery and made my way through the almond trees towards the silver sea, fierce and roaring beyond the cliffs. As the waves crashed on the rocks and the wind numbed my fingers, I waited for something to happen. I think I was waiting for a revelation, something big and profound that would shake me to the core. Nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. And then what came to mind was the poster in my bathroom called the skeletal system. (laughs) The second thing that came to mind was the mute piano in the hotel, a piano that was polished every day but never played. I don't know why it preoccupied me, but it had caught my attention. In fact, I tried not to look at it on my way down the stairs that morning. I thought about all the things I had hoped for, and I laughed. The sound of my own cruel laughter made me want to die. So what, what, what's um, being thought about there are a whole number of things. Um, and one of those things is that I had written a book called Swimming Home, and John alluded to it, and it had been turned down by a big handful of British publishers. And I kind of felt that my voice had been shut down like that piano with, its, with it, you know, the lid shut down. It was Maria polished it every day. Um, I just didn't know how to how to get my writing into the world. Um, And that was one of the things that I was thinking about on those escalators in in London. I realised that the question I'd asked myself while writing this book, Swimming Home, was, as surgeons say, very close to the bone. What do we do with knowledge that we cannot bear to live with? What do we do with the things we do not want to know? And it ends with the uh, Chinese shopkeeper. I had told him that to become a writer, I had to learn to interrupt, to speak up, to speak a little louder, and then louder, and then to just speak in my own voice, which is not loud at all. I rearranged the chair and sat at the desk in my hotel room, and then I looked at the walls to check out the PowerPoints so I could plug in my laptop. The hole in the wall nearest to the desk was placed above the basin, a precarious socket for a gentleman's electric razor. That spring in Mallorca, when life was very hard 
and I simply could not see where there was to get to, it occurred to me that where I had to get to was that socket. Even more useful to a writer than a room of her own is an extension lead and a variety of adapters (laughs) for Europe, America, Asia, and Africa. Thank you very much. So, so that's part one, and um, that's translated into 15 languages now. So things I don't want to know, you can imagine um, that sometimes it's a title that I no longer recognize. Um, it, 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 the, the, the wonderful thing about translation is that it's almost as if the, um, sometimes the book has been reimagined Um, which excites me uh, hugely. Part two is titled The Cost of Living. And um, that was written uh, in my 50s. I'm now 60. Uh, And I'm just going to read two pages from it. Part three, which I'm writing now, um, so I've got 40s, 50s, and a little bit of, of 60. That's a cheat, really, isn't it? It's not really going to be 60s. It's going to be kind of 60, 61. Uh, that's called real estate. And I'm writing it now, and I'm writing some of it in Santa Fe now. And that's about, uh, quite literally, uh, what women own. Uh, so, yeah, property portfolio. Uh, but uh, what we claim and what we discard and, and what we bequeath. And I think that apricot tree here in Santa Fe will be in that book, Real Estate. As Orson Welles told us, if we want a happy ending, it depends on where we stop the story. One January night, I was eating coconut rice and fish in a bar on Colombia's Caribbean coast. A tanned, tattooed American man sat at the table next to me. He was in his late 40s, big muscled arms, his silver hair pinned into a bun. He was talking to a young English woman, perhaps 19 years old, who'd been sitting on her own reading a book. But after some ambivalence had taken up his invitation to join him. At first, he did all the talking. After a while, she interrupted him. Her conversation was interesting, intense, and strange. She was telling him about scuba diving in Mexico, how she'd been underwater for 20 minutes and then surfaced to find there was a storm The sea had become a whirlpool, and she had been anxious about making it back to the boat. Although her story was about surfacing from a dive to discover the weather had changed, it was also about some sort of undisclosed hurt. She gave him a few clues about that. There was someone on the boat who she thought should have come to save her. And then she glanced at him to check if he knew that she was talking about the storm 
in a disguised way. He was not that interested and managed to move his knees in a way that jolted the table so that her book fell to the floor. He said, you talk a lot, don't you? (laughs) She thought about this, her fingers combing out the ends of her hair while she watched two teenage boys selling football shirts to the tourists in the cobbled square. It was not that easy to convey to him, a man much older than she was, that the world was her world too. He had taken a risk when he invited her to join him at his table. After all, she came with a whole life and libido of her own. It had not occurred to him that she might not consider herself to be the minor character and he the major character. (laughs) In this sense, she had unsettled a boundary, collapsed a social hierarchy, broken with the usual rituals. While the waitress collected plates heaped with crab claws and fish bones, I was reminded of the Oscar Wilde quote, Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. (laughs) That was not quite true for her. She had to make a bid for a self that possessed freedoms that he took for granted. After all, he had no trouble being himself. You talk a lot, don't you? To speak our life as we feel it is a freedom we mostly choose not to take. But it seemed to me that the words she wanted to say were lively inside her, mysterious to herself as much as anyone else. Later, when I was writing on my hotel balcony, I thought about how she had invited the drifting man to read between the lines of her undisclosed story. She could have stopped the story by describing the wonder of all she'd seen in the deep calm sea before the storm. That would have been a happy ending, but she did not stop there. She was asking him and herself a question. Do you think I was abandoned by that person on the boat? If he was the wrong reader for her story, I thought on balance she might be the right reader for mine. And here's a thing that I couldn't put into this book, is that uh, when her book uh, fell to the floor, I was leaving this restaurant and I bent down to pick it up for her, and it was my novel Swimming Home. (laughs) I quickly put it back down on the table and and got out of there. but I thought it was a sort of gift. Um, I I couldn't put it in my book because it it felt like I was just giving a big puff for my novel, right? Um, But there you go, That's, that's, that's what happened. And here's how I use this idea of, of this, the metaphor of, of the storm for life. Um, This chapter is called The Tempest. 
Everything was calm. The sun was shining. I was swimming in the deep. And then when I surfaced 20 years later, I discovered there was a storm, a whirlwind, a blasting gale lifting the waves over my head. At first, I wasn't sure I'd make it back to the boat. And then I realized I didn't want to make it back to the boat. Chaos is supposed to be what we most fear. But I have come to believe it might be what we most want. If we don't believe in the future we are planning, the house we are mortgaged to, the person who sleeps by our side, it is possible that a tempest long lurking in the clouds might bring us closer to how we want to be in the world. Life falls apart. We try to get a grip and hold it together. And then we realize we don't want to hold it together. When I was around 50 and my life was supposed to be slowing down and becoming more stable and predictable, life became faster, unstable, unpredictable. My marriage was the boat, and I knew that if I swam back to it, I would drown. It is also the ghost that will always haunt my life. I will never stop grieving for my long-held wish for enduring love that does not reduce its major players to something less than they are. I am not sure I have often witnessed love that achieves all these things, So perhaps this ideal is fated to be a phantom. What sort of questions does this phantom ask of me? It asks political questions for sure, but it is not a politician. When I was traveling in Brazil, I saw a brightly colored caterpillar as thick as my thumb. It looked as if it had been designed by Mondrian its body marked with symmetrical squares of blue, red, and yellow. I couldn't believe my eyes. Most peculiar of all, it appeared to have two vibrant red heads, one on either side of its body. I stared at it over and over again to check if this could possibly be true. It was possible, as I discovered later, because the caterpillar presented a false head to protect itself from predators. At this time, I could not decide which part of the bed I wished to sleep on. Let's say the pillow on my bed faced south. Sometimes I slept there. And then I changed the pillow so it faced north and slept there too. In the end, I placed a pillow on each side of the bed. Perhaps this was a physical expression of being a divided self, of not thinking straight, of being in two minds about something. When love starts to crack, the night comes in. It goes on and on. It is full of angry thoughts and accusations. These tormenting internal monologues don't stop when the sun rises. That is what I resented most, that my mind had been abducted and was full of him. It was nothing less than an occupation. My own unhappiness was starting to become a habit in the way that 
Beckett describes sorrow becoming a thing you can keep adding to all your life, like a stamp or an egg collection. (laughs) I've written quite a lot about mothers and daughters, I've discovered. Um, And I'm going to wind up with, um, with the way the maternal can be written about in an autobiography and then kind of flip it uh, uh, for a novel. And uh, this novel is called Hot Milk. So I'm still reading from The Cost of Living, but some of The Cost of Living is going to um, find its way into Hot Milk and vice versa. When... um, my story collection, Black Vodka, started to get translated in Europe. My publishers all took me out to vodka bars. And then I went and wrote a book called Heart Milk. <laughs> Night Wandering. My mother taught me how to swim and she taught me how to row a boat. She was born in South Africa, grew up in the windy city of Port Elizabeth, and longed for the sea every day in the four decades she lived in North London. In old age, my mother had found a swimming technique to totally give herself to the water. This involved floating on her back, emptying her thoughts, she said, and surrendering to the flow. She showed me a trick in the murky swimming ponds on Hampstead Heath, London, floating Ophelia style with the ducks and weeds and leaves. I still try to do her trick, but I can only float for 10 seconds before I start to sink. Likewise, when I turn my mind to my mother's death, I can only do so for 10 seconds before I start to sink. There is a photograph I have kept of my mother in her late 20s. She is sitting on a rock at a picnic with friends. Her hair is wet because she's just had a swim. There is a kind of introspection in her expression that I now relate to the very best of her. I can see that she is close to herself at this random moment. I'm not sure that I thought introspection was the best of her when I was a child and teenager. What do we need dreamy mothers for? We do not want mothers who gaze beyond us, longing to be elsewhere. We need her to be of this world, Lively, capable, entirely present to our needs. Did I mock the dreamer in my mother and then insult her for having no dreams? As the vintage story goes, it is the father who is the hero and the dreamer. He detaches himself from the pitiful needs of his women and children and strides out into the world to do his thing. He is expected to be himself. When he returns to the home that our mothers have made for us, he is either welcomed back into the fold or becomes a stranger who will eventually need us more than we need him. 
He tells us some of what he has seen in his world, and we give him an edited version of the living we do every day. Our mothers live with us in this living, and we blame her for everything because she is nearby. At the same time, we try not to collude with myths about her character and purpose in life. All the same, we need her to feel anxiety on our behalf. After all, our everyday living is full of anxiety. If we do not disclose our feelings to her, we mysteriously expect her to understand them anyway. And if she moves beyond us, comes close to being a self that is not at our service, she has transgressed from being the mythic primal task, from the mythic primal task of being our protector and nurturer. Yet, if she comes too close, she suffocates us, infecting our fragile courage with her contagious anxiety. If our mother does the things she needs to do in the world, we feel she has abandoned us. It is a miracle she survives our mixed messages written in society's most poisoned ink. It is enough to drive her mad. And I quote uh, the French writer Marguerite Durat from her book Practicalities. I believe that always, or almost always, in all our childhoods and in all the lives that follow them, the mother represents madness. Our mothers always remain the strangest, craziest people we've ever met. So then, uh, on to hot milk. Um, a mother and daughter uh, go to the south of Spain, Almeria, um, on a kind of pilgrimage because this is a book that explores hypochondria. So we either are one or we know someone who is. Um, I mean, who would really write a novel about hypochondria, right? But I thought I'd give it a go. Because I was interested in how uh, the body speaks for us, how symptoms can say the things that are too awkward, um, too uncomfortable for us to really put into words. And so when I was researching hot milk, I spoke to uh, lots of uh, clinicians and doctors and psychoanalysts, and uh, um, doctors told me that um, they called that uh, so, so if you go to the doctor and you say um, you know I, I've got a headache and, and the doctor says well when did it start and you say Thursday the doctor's making notes he's taking a narrative it's called taking a narrative but the hypochondriac has so many mysterious symptoms it's as if he or she doesn't actually want to be diagnosed Wants to, doesn't want to pin, be pinned down in a narrative. So the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan said, uh, the hypochondriac is asking a question 
he or she doesn't want answered. I don't know if that's true. But the mother's the hypochondriac in my story, and the, the daughter, Sophia, is 25. And she has been kept by her mother's side for much too long in life. Um, and uh, she's sort of like a girl detective, always trying to sleuth her mother's symptoms. What's wrong with my mother today? And right at the end of the book, Sophia who's become much bolder in her life, has this to say about her mother. I had been waiting on her all my life. I was the waitress, waiting on her and waiting for her. What was I waiting for? Waiting for her to step into herself or step out of her invalid self? waiting for her to take the voyage out of her gloom, to buy a ticket to a vital life with an extra ticket for me. Yes, I had been waiting all my life for her to reserve a seat for me. The door to the concrete terrace on the beach opened of its own accord. A breeze filled the room, a warm desert breeze coming in deep salt smell of seaweed and hot sand. The waves were crashing on the beach and on the table on the terrace, her laptop resting on it, the night stars of her screensaver made in China open under the real night stars in Spain. And this is what Sophia says. All summer... I had been moonwalking in the digital Milky Way. It's calm there, inside my laptop. But I'm not calm. My mind is like the edge of motorways where foxes eat the owls at night. In the star fields, with their faintly glowing paths running across the screen, I have been making footprints in the dust and glitter of the virtual universe. It never occurred to me that like the Medusa, technology stares back and that its gaze might have petrified me, made me fearful to come down, down to earth, where all the hard stuff happens, down to the checkout tills and the barcodes and the too many words for profit and the not enough words for pain. And what did she imagine for herself and for her mother? I imagine that my mother is wearing smart shoes with straps over her ankles. She is pointing to her watch, inviting me to walk faster <coughs> so we will not be late for the cinema. She has booked the tickets. Yes, she has chosen our seats. Walk faster, Sophia, faster. She points to her watch. I don't want you to miss the trailers. <laughs> Thank you. Um, not very much more reading now. Um, so, just one small paragraph from my new book, The Man Who Saw Everything, which I will be discussing with John. 
So this is written in the first person um, from a male point of view. And the man is Saul Adler. The book starts when he's 28, and he's trying to cross the Abbey Road in London. And that's the iconic uh, zebra crossing. Do you say zebra? Yeah, zebra crossing. Um, that, that was made so famous on the Beatles uh, album, Abbey Road. And while I was researching the book, I used to sit on the wall outside uh, the studio, EMI studio, where Abbey Road was recorded, and watch tourists from all over the world uh, walk across this, this, the zebra. And it was, it really was so cool and, and such a joyful thing to do because I could see that they were acting out a piece of history. So they decide whether they were John or Paul or Ringo. <laughs> and um, and uh, it, was very, it was very playful and somehow um, dangerous too because they could get run over. So I researched how the original photograph was taken by Ian Macmillan in 1969. And he only had 10 minutes to take the photograph of the fabulous four uh, crossing that zebra crossing. Um, They paid a policeman uh, to stop the traffic for 10 minutes. And Ian Macmillan um, climbed up a stepladder and, and took that photograph. And so I have Saul Adler's girlfriend, Jennifer Moreau, uh, bring a ladder with her to the Abbey Road to take a photograph of Saul crossing, crossing that um, zebra crossing for various reasons. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph because it's an argument that goes on for 30 years. <laughs> It's not unlike the angel and the accountant I discovered when I was thinking about all of this on the 11-hour flight here. (laughs) It's like this, Saul Adler. When I was 23, I loved the way you touched me. But when the afternoon slipped in, you were already looking for someone else. No, it's like this, Jennifer Moreau. I loved you every night and every day, but you were scared of my love, and I was scared of my love too. No, she said, I was scared of your envy, which was bigger than your love. Attention, Saul Adler, attention. Look to the left and to the right, cross the road and get to the other side. concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. So before we get into this uh, rather fabulous new novel, I want to go back to your memoirs, because in the last decade you've published a group of books that's about this size, and I've given those two memoirs to so many young writers, and it's been a a real comfort to them. because it's sort of like you looked, you know, like we have this legend of Babe Ruth pointing at the center field fence and then hitting a home run. <laughs> and it's like watching you in the, in the first memoir put, 
point at the center field fence or in cricket, whatever that would be, and say, this is what I need to do, and I'm going to set out to do it, and then do it in front of you. And so I, I guess I want to ask um, us to return to the second memoir, where your life is in sort of the most disruption. And if you could just describe a little bit more about <laughs> how you were living and how you found the time and energy while your life was in disarray to get back to work and how you got back to work. Because that's... Yeah. You found a space for that, too. Yeah. But you have to read the book. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I think you're referring to uh, moving with my daughters to an apartment block that was like a, like a sort of beautiful Art Deco apartment block that was falling down. And there was something called a restoration project that was in place, which we all had to pay for, and which never happened. <laughs> and we were living on the, the fifth floor, and... Um, <laughs> And all the all my books were in the garage, all my Emily Dickinson books. And I thought, well, I'm not going to unpack them until the restoration project actually, you know, is actually completed. And I called the corridors, um, which were uh, in a state of disrepair. I, I joke in my book, I call them the corridors of love because love was in a state of disrepair in in my book. And when I uh, toured Ireland uh, with the cost of living, a woman put up her hand and she said, Deborah, can I just ask you, have the corridors of love been repaired yet? (laughs) And I said to her, well, I've never been asked an interior decoration question before, but I knew exactly what she meant. And... What I was proudest of was that she had said the corridors of love, as if this was not a sort of normal way to speak. She just just accepted the language, you Mm. know. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, I really do think you should write to the managing agents. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so then a, um, so this is a very busy professional time in my life and I, I suddenly had nowhere to write um, um, it, you know unless I was I, I did write a bit on my balcony with the strawberry plants I do love plants <laughs> love to write amongst plants um, and, but my uh, I had a friend Celia who's the wife of the great poet Adrian Mitchell and um, he had died a few years before, and she said to him, I think you need a place to write, and you should write an Adrian shirt in the garden. It was a very big thing for her to, to give me, really. And I, we, she, she likes to strike a bargain. We agreed a rent. And I began to write in that shirt, in that dark, dusty, beautiful shed under an apple tree, all the London squirrels scampering up, pretending not to see me. Mm. And I pretended not to see them. If you live with squirrels, I don't know if you do here. <laughs> very strange, very strange to write um, 
these creatures coming up and down the tree. And, uh, and I wrote three books. Three did, books in that shed. And did the books differ um, in what they were... You said, you said in one of the memoirs, all writing is about looking and listening and paying attention. And, and the books that were written in that period, this last ten years, they feel mm. markedly different from, from the first six books. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can characterize the difference of your attention and what it was focused on in, in those three novels and these two memoirs. Hmm. I don't think I'm paying any less... I paid any less attention in the earlier books. <laughs> no. They're just younger. They were just written when I was younger. My first novel, um, that the line is, my mother... first line is, my mother was the ice skating champion of Moscow. She loved that line. Um, I guess um, from swimming home onwards, um, I wanted to embed the unconscious, um, not in streams of consciousness, but in narrative. Because, um, you know, old-fashioned modernism has told us to do the unconscious in streams. I'm reading William James at the moment. He's fantastic on streams of consciousness. He was, he was Gertrude Stein's tutor at Radcliffe College when she had enrolled uh, to study psychology, apparently, because mm. she'd seen a man hitting a woman with an umbrella and wanted to investigate a clinical reason for his behavior. <laughs> Where were we? Streams of consciousness, yeah. Streams of consciousness, there you go. <laughs> Comes with you on stage, you know. Um, yes, and so... Um, so that became a project, mm-hmm. and I think that... I think the most important thing about fiction for myself is that it is free... Now that sounds a really odd thing to say, I know, because all writing is, 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 a, is an artifice, is something of performance. Um, but freedom of thought to actually sort of claim that space and say, I'm going to let this, let this work um, be as free as it possibly can be um, is, is what happened from Swimming Home mm. onwards. And my questions change, because for Swimming Home, um, you know, um, so Joseph is a British poet, he's a character in Swimming Home, he is on vacation with his wife and his 14-year-old daughter in the south of France. So I, I was interested in the way that Henry James or Forster take their British and and Ameri- take their British and Americans and put them somewhere else. And I thought, yes, I like that. I'm going to do that. Sort of innocence abroad. Exactly. I put, t- take them out of their comfort zone and habits, feeling a little bit unfamiliar, see what happens. And so that's Swimming Home is set in the south of France. Um, and Nice, somebody said to me, um, oh, Nice, that's a sunny place for shady people. <laughs> Josef was born in Poland 
when he's five, he's Jewish, when he's five, he's smuggled out of, he's smuggled through a wood, his parents, the Nazis have occupied Poland in 1938, and they know, they know what's going to happen to them, and uh, his son is smuggled through the woods and will end up in Whitechapel in the east end of London. And his father says to him when he's five, you cannot come home. You can never come home. And usually when we say those words, uh, they said in anger, but this is said to his son in, with love. Mm. And so Yosef always has, will forever have a problem with love. And it, the book explores that. And um, I knew if I was going to have essentially a very depressed man lead the book, I had to have very sunny weather. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to make him relentlessly cheerful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that something was hidden. Um, And when Kitty Finch arrives, a young, fragile woman, she date crashes this holiday um, she believes that she's in telepathy with Josef's thoughts she's a big fan of his work she's a big <laughs> fan of his work and, she thinks um, his poems have been written specifically for her absolutely and so it goes on mm. Mm. Um, you know I, I, over the course of these, these previous three n- novels uh, they go more inward too um, I think, although Hot Milk, there's a lot of in-between the mother and daughter, you, you end in the sort of note of, of her thinking. And the, the, the third novel, the most recent one, um, uh, it, it, takes, it, it could be taking place entirely in his head. The man who saw everything. The man who saw everything. And I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the reversals in the book, um, you know, in, in one of your memoirs, you said, I, I was more interested in a major unwritten female character. And in, in The Man Who Saw Everything, you have a, a, a man who, who's not really the main character of his life. He's become the subject of a famous photograph. His wife, over the course of the book, I don't think it gives too much away, has a beautiful career in art. And he gets to go to the exhibit where um, everyone's looking at his picture, but no one sees him. And I, I wonder if you were turning back to a male character but thought, okay, I know how I can do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some reversals in here. Yes, definitely. So the structure of the book is a little bit like a mirror with a crack down the middle and both sides reflecting mm. each other because it's a book set in two parts. And what I wanted to do was to take a personal history, that of Saul Adler, and braid it together with a collective history, and, and that is post-war Europe. Because you might have heard that Britain's going, sort of trying to <laughs> separate from, and from Europe. So this was, in, this was in the air, sort of bleakly, you know, while, while I was writing it. Um, I was living in Paris while I was writing some of the manus or everything, and in Paris, the Second World War is very close in a way that it's not in London. So, for example, um, on my way to the bakery or to the subway, I passed three nursery schools, and they had blue plaques up saying 300 Jewish children were deported 
1942 to the death camps, three of them. And I began to understand um, really viscerally uh, the effort it took to make peace in Europe. And something of that is in the book. It's also a book about authoritarianism and narcissism. And both of those, both those things, I think, are in the in the world at the moment. So I set um, the book is set in Britain in 2016 on the Abbey Road, London, and it's set in the GDR in communist East Germany in 1988 because I wanted an authoritarian regime, not too far, you know, uh, quite quite. Not too far in the past, so it's the jet lag, you know. Not too far away in the past. And um, I wanted the wall to be coming down quite soon, and I wanted to look at what no freedom of movement was mm. like. Mm. Because there would be very few citizens of the GDR who'd, who would recommend walls, borders, and no freedom of movement to you and me. So, uh, so these two histories—the history of the, uh, this collective history of the GDR and of Saul Adler—are plattered together, and there's a little bit of uh, 2016 in 1988 and 1988 in 2016 because I wanted these time zones to be experienced simultaneously, and that's not supernatural or a gimmick or anything else. I just believe that's how we experience time. So you're thinking about yesterday, and you're thinking about today, and you're making maybe some plans for the future. Um, maybe on Tuesday, something of something that happened in your childhood just surfaces, um, and something that you going to do in the future surfaces or wish for or long for so the simultaneous experience of time being and time we are we are all beings in time so I collapse some of those time zones in the book um, I'm making this sound more mysterious than it is because I, there are lots of spoilers mm. to do with time and, um, and I don't want to wreck those um, I, I think it's fair to say it won't spoil anything to tell the audience that Saul is a historian. Yep. And he's a specialist in tyrannical psycho psychology of he's, dictators, he's, he, right? When the book opens, um, he's writing his PhD on the psychology of male tyrants. <laughs> and he is looking at the way that Stalin flirted with women. <laughs> and how he did that was that he took a loaf of bread at the dinner table and he tore it out and he rolled it into balls and he threw it at them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's also looking at... So, so the novel's also looking at paranoia and surveillance. It is mm. called The Man Who Saw Everything. Yeah. And um, Stalin wanted to punish citizens for unconscious thought crimes against the party. 
Mm. Yeah. So that gets an airing in my book, too. And he's... Do you think his... Um, what's your reading on him as a character? Does, I get the feeling that his historicization actually kind of blinds him to dynamics of power that he's participating in. As in, he looks at Stalin and the, the regimes that he studied as a sort of superhuman, as out there. Whereas the, the things that he's engaged in every day, he doesn't tend to look at on the same spectrum. Yeah. So Saul Adler has an authoritarian father, so I'm looking at an authoritarian regime and an authoritarian parent. Mm. Because the GDR is called the fatherland, right? And um, Saul's father is um, a communist, East End working class guy. And um, he has a lot of trouble, his father, with his... um, with the beauty of his son, because Saul Adler is freakishly beautiful, and he's bisexual, and he is um, he's loving and vain. And when the book starts, I, I would say that Saul becomes a historian of communist Eastern Europe. Uh, his career choice is a bit Oedipal. It's <laughs> to please his father... I think Saul's more interested in Mark Boland than Vladimir Lenin. It's more, you know, David Bowie. Um, and um, so it's an Oedipal decision. His heart's not quite in it. Mm. And he goes to East Berlin to, um, to do some research. And in return, he's, he, he has to write a pa- paper that um, honours the economic miracle <laughs> of, of the GDR and he falls in love with Walter Muller, his translator mm. and so, so I'm looking at the way that we look at each other when we are in love you know that thing where you don't really want to be caught looking at the object of your passion or the subject of your passion so, um, but, uh, so you sort of look away or spies also have to sort of not be caught looking at whoever it is they're looking at. And then, of course, being a bit of a Freud, Sigmund Freud buff, um, you know, I was thinking about the way that children are really the first spies because they are like cameras on their parents, uh, surveying us all the time. And, uh, yeah. I love the way that you um, write the psychological novel. Um, it's become, to some degree, less popular as more people move out of psychotherapy into therapy and life coaching. And I, and I, I see, I'm curious if you agree, but I, I see the way that you've done that is not through, as you described, these sort of long, in-depth, rather fictional passages of consciousness but rather a kind of patterning of the novel yeah. that, that tends to feel uncanny. And I wonder if you can describe, well, I guess how you do that and how you choose the symbols, because it's, the feeling of reading this novel is, is, um, is like being inside Saul's head, even though you're outside yeah. in public spaces. So Saul is a man coming to consciousness, mm. right? He says to Jennifer Moreau, that, that, that could be interpreted, that's a huge... 
that's a huge subject, right? And it's also a very literal subject because he's run over by a car. So he is a man, quite literally, coming back to mm. consciousness, coming to consciousness. Um, he's run over by a Jaguar on the Abbey Road. <laughs> and as he crosses the zebra, he looks at himself in the wing mirror of the Jaguar, of the, of the, of the, of, yeah, the wing mirror of the car. And the mirror explodes and shatters. And it's as if Saul's reflection sort of falls into him because the mirror pierces his, his skull. Mm. That's why he ends up in hospital. So I look at that the Narcissus myth and I just flip it a bit so that um, his reflection falls into, literally falls into him. So then we meet Luna Muller in East Germany and Luna has a fear of jaguars. <laughs> And, um, and why is that? Mm. So she's got a phobia, apparently, um, about these jaguars, these big cats prowling East Berlin. If we run with her language for, for a bit, uh, the jaguars inside her head, it's a phobia. Um, but there's also a jaguar inside Saul's head. Mm from the Abbey Road, and he's telling the story. So I work, I, I just work with, with all of that. And then um, I'm interested in objects. Like how could an, a, a very humble object, how could I use it like Raymond Chandler uses a gun? Mm-hmm. So I use a tin of pineapple that way. <laughs> because Walter Muller saw Saul Adler's translator in East Germany has asked him to bring just one thing to East Berlin and that's a tin of pineapple because there was a shortage of tin fruit and in particular pineapple and Saul who is a careless man so I explore carelessness he's careless about his own life and he's careless about the lives of others he forgets the tin of pineapple and this has a huge impact throughout the novel because his translator's sister, Luna, has asked her mother to bake her for her birthday a pineapple cake. And Saul is going to bring the pineapple and he forgets it. And Walter's mother says to Saul, Luna has said that she would have the wall, the Berlin Wall, built one meter higher just for one piece of pineapple. It's a sort of dark joke. (laughs) And he just blushes. Mm. It's like, you know, blushes and feels a great deal of shame. So so, So I wanted to show how a man from the West, from the opulence of the West, um, might forget to bring this humble, this humble fruit, and what? And you know, he's also brought his father's ashes. He's, he's brought a, a little matchbox. He's brought a, His father has died, and he's brought a, a, a spoonful of his father's ashes to to bury 
in East Germany. And that is explored later because it's a little coffin, isn't it? Mm. And there's another little coffin. That made up, it's like a pastry, right? There's a pastry in Prague, which is like an eclair, which is literally called a little coffin with cream in the middle and these two sides here. And then in the story, there's another little coffin. Mm. So they're not really symbols. Yeah. I think it's just that um, things, things have symbolic meaning when they're not um, symbols. Yeah. Um, so do you think in the end um, these three novels put together will be some kind of whatever happens in the next three weeks or three months or three years, who knows what's going to happen in Parliament, that these novels will, will, will be saying something together about Britain's role in Europe in some way? I mean, was that at all part of the project of writing them? Or did they, were they conceived so separately that that's almost accidental? No, they were conceived very separately. So Hot Milk, um, I think the financial crisis in, in, Greece, in yeah. Greece was happening. And um, that interested me a lot because, as you know, we exploring hypochondria and the kind of language that was coming out at the time um, in that financial crisis in Greece. And I have to say that Sophia is half Greek. So she is Sophia Papasteriadis. She has a Greek father and a mother from Yorkshire. And the father had left the family home when she was about five. And so she has the surname that no one can pronounce and no one can spell Papasteriadis. So she doesn't quite know how to uh, inhabit her identity, right? So then she goes to visit her father in Athens. Yeah. And the kind of language that was in the media at the time was the contagion, the contagion of debt, the infection of debt, the bitter pill of austerity. And this language was kind of popping with, um, with the hypochondria theme as well. Mm. There was a great deal of um, headlines, too, around that period of Bulgarians invading Britain. Yeah, right. Um, The man who saw everything, you know, it's a a bit like like the writers sort of wearing Velcro and the things happening in the world are sticking to it. (laughs) What's happening is that it's the first writhing pain of... Britain trying to leave the European Union. But I'm not really writing um, directly about um, Brexit. I'm writing about um, the, the effort it took historically to make peace in, after, the, after the Second World War. Mm. Um, there is a reference, there's one reference to Brexit, isn't it? When, when Saul meets his, his nephews and he says, how do you feel about Britain leaving Europe at the most promising time of your life? They're 17 and um, they ask him where the elevator is. <laughs> they don't answer. But the bigger, bigger heartbreak I feel in the book is it comes from the from Saul and Jennifer and their 30-year argument that they've had. And I think it's... um, I wonder if you can talk about 
writing about history, but replacing history with intimate history. Yeah. Uh, well, we all have an intimate history, and we all live in history. And we, some of us make history, and some of us suffer from history. Um, so, so there's the James Baldwin quote, um, history is stuck in us, and we are stuck in history. Um, it was very important to me to, to try and plat together a, a, a personal history, and that history includes Saul and, and Jennifer. So I'm looking at a man who really finds attachment difficult. And, um, and he finds that he, he, he's a loving man, because it wouldn't be interesting, actually, if that was not the case. One, one of the intriguing things about uh, writing characters is I've, that I've discovered that a loving character is much more subversive than a hater because there's much more to lose. It's riskier. The hater hasn't really got very much to It's not much at stake. Mm-hmm. And I want there to be a lot at stake in, in my novels. Um, so she says to Saul at the end of the book, the only way that um, you were so detached, the only way I could reach you was with my camera. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. And he's aware of his limitations. And he's try- I think one of- this is one of the great novels of a complex character because he's vain and yet loving. He um, has the capacity for curiosity, but he doesn't have the daring to cross certain borders. Um, he's both entitled and um, somehow on the margins in some strange kind of way that he's made his life. And it, ultimately, in their, mar- in their um, relationship, he feels like he both wants to be with her but doesn't have the capacity to be with her when she's ready for him to be with her. And it, it, to mm. me, I, I kept trying not hard not to uh, make that a, a, a metaphor for, <laughs> for countries in, in, in wartime. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. You know, that, that basically, mm. pe- that we're braided together as nations, whether we like it or not, and often find ourselves with competing interests when, if you could fast forward 30 or 40 years, maybe mm. certain nations would be able to get along. Mm. Yep. Anyway, I wonder if at this point, if anyone in the audience might have a question for Deborah Levy um, about any of her books or. It's very hard to make something question shaped. Mm. <laughs> you know where, where, where the, you have to sort of go up at the end? I think you could just. Um, you could just have a thought. I feel some, someone standing up there, yes. Might I ask you a question? Certainly. Um, the concept of, like, uh, when you're writing, it's just literally, it's, it's writing linearly. Can you hear me? Just about. Okay. Uh, linear thinking, uh, writing kind of, it's difficult 
not to get caught in that trap of linear thinking, yeah. literal thinking even. Yeah. Uh, so are there any devices that you like or any uh, protocols that like uh, get uh, dimensional? I mean, have you ever thought of, sure, uh, dimensional? Like I think there are different dimensions to thinking and being. And that seems like a fundamental <laughs> challenge. Like in, say, even letter writing, how do you convey what has different dimensions in a, in a linear type of mm -hmm. Yeah. So how not to write in a linear way? Well, I don't think we really think in a linear way. And, um, I mean, we might try and force ourselves to think in that way. And we're told that, um, uh, you know, that if you're writing in a way that respects the health and safety regulations for getting published, <laughs> um, that you're going to uh, have no fragmentation of time, that you're going to have certain moral resolutions at the end of your story, um, and all of that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think... There are no writers that I respect who sort of write like that anymore. And the, the thing about literature is that, or fiction is that it's a very good home for the reach of the human mind. And the human mind can go anywhere. Uh, and that's sometimes a good thing, and sometimes it's, it, it isn't, you know. If, um, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, you can be a obsessed with tormenting thoughts that won't budge. And art's a very good place to put those thoughts. It's a good home for those thoughts. Uh, they are of value. And so, so the reach of the human mind is immensely valuable to all of us. And it doesn't go in a straight line. And there are obviously um, many techniques and strategies to um, approach, <laughs> to, to, to kind of gather those, those dimensions. And um, I'm not going to really single out uh, uh, any, any one of them, except to say that that's the project, to, to give value to the reach of, of every single mind in this, in this room now. If, if we told our lives, as we really feel them, we, I don't think any of us would be bored. <laughs> um, should we take one more? Yeah, there's one in the center. Um, that was a really good note to end on, so this better be an awesome question. <laughs> <laughs> Are there clear, clear, clear divisions between... Your life and your work. 
Aha. Uh-huh. Am I putting all my life into my work? Are you saying all my work into my life? Um, I have a very, uh, I have quite a disciplined writing regime. I up early in the morning, I have a coffee, and I cycle down to my shed, which is dark and dusty and still and silent and serene. And the morning has that kind of softness um, that um, sort of elicits, sort of, I don't know, quite gentle, gentle thoughts. And sometimes it's those gentle thoughts that are really steely, you know. There's this idea that you have to have a big, bold concept, and those are good too, believe me. (laughs) But um, it's very interesting um, writing about um, history, as as, as you've said, because perhaps one of the stories of history is that we mistake... Uh, fragility, immense personal fragility for strength, right? And and um, when we write, we need to find out. Um, we need to find out what what actually what what strength actually means. So it's not it's not about uh, the posturing and the particular way of. Delivering, uh, <clears throat> it's not about certainty. You know, the only people who are really 100% certain are psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so the writing is a place to, um, to explore doubt and, and, and to explore, to, to give a different. To, to make a different sort of world, actually, um, um, and to accumulate, um, to accumulate ideas and to accumulate feeling and to find techniques to give, to give life as we experience it as many dimensions as possible, and to find ourselves, I think, in that history. History is not interesting unless we can find ourselves in it. Um, some of us have to prevail. Um, I, I was born in South Africa, and I saw the, you know, I saw the struggle to make a democracy, um, which I've written about in um, things I don't want to know. So I guess the aim of writing and reading for, for myself is to find, <clears throat> to find myself in the mood of, of that work. It's like looking at a Rothko painting. You know, I don't look at it and say, oh, that guy should have done a few life-drawing classes. <laughs> <laughs> I just accept his language because he's so skilled. This is the part where we all slowly walk out towards the, the cold, but there's a very warm place between here and the cold, and that's where all that life is that I was talking about. It will be on a table, it will have her name on it, it will be in covers, and she'll sign them um, very shortly. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.